Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting at verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous in the stars in the sky. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. And then just picking up at uh, verse 13 in chapter 11 which is just over the page. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your corn, new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads. And finally, just picking up at verse 26 until the end. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim to Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, westward, towards the setting sun, near the great trees of Morah, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah and in the vicinity of Gigal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you have taken it over and are living there, Be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I'm setting before you today.
Charlie, thank you. Thank you for reading. Morning, everyone. Well done for battling through the cyclists uh, and the rain. My name's Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Uh, I think I probably have, uh, although maybe a chance to get to know one or two afterwards. So last week then, uh, for the time being, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we'll change of direction next week, but um, try and pull one or two things together on this section uh, this morning as we turn to God's word. Let me lead us in prayer together. Great God and Father, we thank you for your timeless word and thank you that you speak it to us today. Please give us ears to hear. Please, would you be the one who is at work in our hearts so that we do long to desire to respond to you. We ask it, please, for our good as well as the honor of your name. Amen. I mean, one of the most amazing things about being a Christian is, of course, you're forgiven you're forgiven for all you've done wrong. That, that's through Jesus Christ. He pays it all, as we sung, for the things we do wrong. And the certainty of heaven is, is won through him. He's done it all for us to get to heaven. In fact, of course, our, our whole standing before the Lord, the fact that we're his children, He's a father. He loves us. That's all done by Jesus Christ. It's all won by him. It's just wonderfully true. But of course, you can raise up the question. When you think about that, it's all him, not me. You can raise the question, so what does the Lord require of me? Well, if he's done everything puts my status right before him and, and, and forgives all my sins and, and guarantees me heaven, what does the Lord require of me? Now, you could ask that, I guess, in a sort of calculating way. Perhaps some do. Okay, so I'm a Christian. Uh, what, what's, the, what's then, what have I got to do? I mean, really, what's the minimum that the Lord requires of me? Uh, you know, like a child. You know, I've got to tidy my room, but what's the minimum I can get away with? You know, that's sort of, all right, what, what actually is required? Now you've given me my presence, uh, parents. So what's, what do I have to do? You might think in those calculating terms. Look, what's the sort of minimum amount of time commitment you require, Lord? Uh, what do you require of me? How much money do I have to give, really, uh, which is sort of okay? Um, how, how many of my decisions need to really be framed by you? I mean, he, here's my life, and, and here you are, and, and how much... How much do you require of me to bring to you, Lord? Because I've got stuff I want to do. Um, so what's required? How, how worldly can I be? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not meant to be, but you know. What's a sort of acceptable level of immorality, perhaps, but in those terms? I mean, really, what do you require of me? I'm never going to be perfect this side of heaven. We all know that. So kind of what's Okay. Um, where do you draw the line, Lord? What is required of me? Now, most don't ask in those terms, hopefully. I think many, of course, do ask with a bit more integrity, Lord, what do you want from me? What is the best that I can do for you? What is the best use of my life? What is the best use of my... What, what do you require of me, Lord? And as Moses comes to a sort of concluding point in the book of Deuteronomy, 
The question is chapter 10 and verse 12. Okay, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What is it he wants? What's required? And he'll give us an answer. If you have been here over the last few weeks, then we've just taken this section, um, chapters 5 to 11 of the book of Deuteronomy, and really thought about uh, murmurings of the heart. I mean, really, the headline over it is, is in chapter 6. Uh, Here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your everything, with your muchness, with your strength, with all that you've got. You love him. But then um, Moses warns them, look, you're going to muffle, mutter to yourself in your heart. You're going to mumble, chapter 7, verse 17. You'll murmur in your heart. Well, we've got to blend in with the culture. We can't resist them. Chapter 8, verse 17. You'll murmur in your heart. Look at what I've achieved. Well done, me. All of life's success is uh, down to me, 8.17. Your murmur in your heart, chapter 9, verse 4, look at my morality. I'm so much better. I'm a good person. I'm righteous compared to them. All these things, you'll mutter in your heart. Watch out. Don't do that, is the recurrent phrasing. In chapter 10, if you hear last time, Moses gave them a history lesson. How despite their repeatedly rebellious nature and behavior, the Lord had forgiven them because they had one who mediated for them, Moses, just as Christians have one who mediates for them, Jesus Christ. And here in this concluding section, chapter 10, verse 12 to um, 11, verse 32, Moses is looking forward. Before you get to the very detailed legislation, 12 to 26 in the book, Moses is looking forward and saying, okay, as a forgiven people, Israel, What does the Lord require of you? And the issue is, still, he requires your heart. So let's look at it in this way. Uh, I think I've put these points down, uh, certainly on the sheets. What does the Lord require of you? He requires a heart that is active, a heart that chooses him, and a heart that he gives. Okay, A heart that's active, a heart that chooses him, a heart that he gives. Those three. That's what the Lord required of Israel and still for us today. First then, and we'll probably spend uh, probably half our time remaining on this. Uh, The Lord says, I require a heart that is active or produces action. Chapter 10, verse 12 to 11, 1, really uh, stressing this. What does the Lord require? Let me read it, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Well... But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with your, uh, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your good. What does the Lord require of you? Well, you might say, looking at that list, he requires both um, internal emotion and external action. So you look at that list, and there's some which really, I guess you'd say they're internal. The, the Lord asks you to fear him and to love him. Well, those are attitudes of the heart. Fear him in this context, not a sort of craven fear. Ah! Uh, oh, I'm having a nightmare. Not sort of craven fear, but uh, a reverent love. Uh, the, the appropriate response of a child to their parent who says, Enough. And occasionally the child will say, I'm so sorry. 
um, occasionally. Uh, it works out that way. It was an appropriate, uh, a respect for authority, uh, a reverent love that issues in obedience is the fear of the Lord. But you've got these internal uh, emotions, fear, honor, or, or love. But alongside that, the externals walk in obedience, serve him, observe or keep all the commands and decrees. Both. The Lord wants both our emotions and our actions, you might say. That should be familiar in this book of Deuteronomy, hopefully familiar in the Christian life. Without love, obeying a love for the Lord, obeying his commands is, is what? It's a... Uh, it's begrudging legalism. Oh, I'll obey. Oh, but I don't want to. Oh. That's the sort of, what's the minimum I can get away with attitude? Without love for him. But then without action, the expressions of love, of course, are completely vacuous. I love you, Lord, as I completely rebel. I love you, Lord, as I punch someone in the face. I love you, Lord, uh, as I uh, commit perjury in court. I love you, Lord. I mean, that is vacuous and meaningless. And so the Lord says, no, I I require both, a heart that is both. The internal emotion, external action. Both have got to come together in some sort of healthy uh, relationship with me. We'll put it in these terms. Here's a marriage. And uh, uh, the wife, here's in this marriage, and the wife asks the husband, look, here's what I require of you. Can you um, take care of the garden and you cook the meals? That's what I require of you. And he does, so that's good. And the husband says to the wife, here's what I require of you. Can you, I don't know, uh, do the ironing and um, arrange the diary, the house diary? Uh, and, she, and she does, and that's good. So, so they, they, they fit the requirements, and every morning he gets up and makes her a cup of tea, and she says, thank you very much. And every evening he says, can I have a cup of coffee? And she makes one, thank you very much. And so they, they issue, they, they have their sort of, by default, their, sort of, their, their, their roles, and, and they fulfill them. And it's, it's okay, but it's loveless. And they're just going through the motions, and there's no affection, and there's no tenderness. There's no warmth. Well, kind of works, I guess, but not very satisfactory for anyone. Here's a marriage, a a different one. Uh, Here's a marriage full of grand sweeping gestures. Uh, Every morning they wake up and recite the poem they'd written the day before to to their beloved. And uh, there are uh, flowers... Uh, and chocolates, and all sorts of dramatic sweeping gestures, and, and there's, there's passion in the bedroom, and, and they're tactile in public to the point of embarrassment for everyone else. Um, and yet at the same time, he will never do anything at home. Could you put the rubbish out? No. Could you help? No. Could you? No. No. Nothing. And she's off having an affair. Oh, they love the great demonstrative effective demonstrations of love, but just in the practicalities, there's nothing there. There's no loyalty. There's no service. Well, that won't work probably very long. So there are two marriages, and which one would you rather be in? Don't answer the question. It's a silly question. You don't want to be in either of those. And the Lord says, what do I require of you? Internal emotions and external action. Love, obedience, service walking in my ways. 
It's, of course, in a church setting. Uh, let's put it in a church. Before we get to individual church setting, you might get churches very strong on biblical teaching, strong on moral obedience, strong on doing the right thing, but can't cope with emotional expressions of faith. They just slightly freak out at that. And uh, you get plenty of warnings against emotionalism. Don't show emotions and don't ever let your emotions drive anything you do ever because that's the path of heresy. Uh, and that's a fairly stifling, clenched place to be, perhaps. And you get individuals in those, uh, and churches are a bit like that. And on the other hand, of course, you can get churches which are just, just all about emotionalism, all about an individual's experience of God in the moment uh, and the rest of the week, pff, immorality. And the churches that don't care about the businessman who beats up his employees is completely immoral at work or the man who's having an affair. They don't really care about those things. It's all about the moment. Well, which church would you rather be in? Again, it's a very silly question. You don't read either of those. Because the Lord says, well, here's what I require of you. That you love me effectively from the heart. That you're moved by who I am and what I've done for you. And that you walk in my ways and you keep my commands. Both. I want both. I don't want begrudging compliance. Oh, what do you require of me, Lord? I don't want that. I want loving obedience. What do you want me to do for you, Lord? And then the rest of chapter 10, I guess you get the motivations or the encouragement to live that way. They sort of come in pairs or or contrasts. So verses 14 and 15, he, the Lord owns everything, but he cares for you. Verse 14, to the Lord your God belong, well, belongs everything, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. He owns everything. And yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them and he chose you, their descendants above all the nations. He owns everything, but he chose you. How very wonderful. In view of God's gracious choice, I guess a call to love him with everything is is entirely reasonable. So I read read in the paper this week, Jamie Porter is called up to the England test squads to play um, uh, against India next week. And he's wildly excited about this and said, I I will give everything. Uh, It's the greatest honor imaginable to represent my country. Uh, And um, well, yeah, great. Good for you. Uh, and if you've worked all your life for that, so it probably is. It's a sort of nice story. Two years ago, he couldn't even get a contract to play for any of the counties, and he was working in an accountant's office or something in, in Enfield and just playing a bit of cricket part-time for his local club. And two years later, he's in the town. Oh, it's a lovely story. Oh, give everything. What a privilege. Well, yeah, great. Of course, he has worked for it. Puts in the hours, batting practice in the nets. The Christian believer says, well, what a privilege. The Lord who owns everything in the cosmos has decided to love me. And I've not owned it. I've put in no effort. He's chosen me. Well, I'll love him. How could I not? What an honor. He owns everything, but he cares for you. Get another sort of pair that go together, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He's got no rivals, and yet he cares for the powerless. Verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. But you should be like him. He's utterly unique. And what does he do with his unique power? He cares for those who have the least. 
Let's say verse 20, 21. Look, here's the summary. Here's who he is, the one who's asking you to love him. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. You can trust in verse 22. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. He said you'd turn from tiny people into a massive nation. And you have. You can trust this God. He's unique. Do you ever see the play when it was on? I don't think it's on anymore. But the play when it was running uh, in the West End. Uh, One Man, Two Governors. Very funny. It was very funny. Uh, so James Corden originally was the, was the star of it. And uh, it's a farce, or, you know, pretty uh, harmless farce in one sense, uh, of one man sort of working for two governors, but not telling the other. So you see him sort of desperately dashing, you know, from one side of the stage, literally just sort of, you know, sorting out this guy's, sorting out this guy's dinner, and then dashing to the other side to sort out this car's bit this guy's business and then sort of dashing between them and he's utterly exhausted and it all goes wrong <laughs> with hilarious consequences uh and it was it was actually very funny uh the one man trying to serve the two governors and it's exhausting living that way and, and here the emphasis is there is only one god you don't have to dash and serve up there is only him And if you try and serve, too, if you try and serve the Lord and whatever your own ambitions and your own dreams, and, well, that is exhausting. It's his opinion you should care about. And this God says, "Look, I, I want a heart that is active. That is, I want your heart. I want internal emotions. I want external actions. And I'm the only God there is." And I've chosen you when I could have chosen any other. He wants a heart that's active. More briefly, he wants a heart that chooses him. And uh, really, that's the emphasis of the, particularly the ceremony at the end of uh, chapter 11. In one sense, the whole book of Deuteronomy is forcing upon the people a choice. Choose him, choose him, choose him, choose him, Moses says. Oh, I mean, that is really the, the, the whole thrust of the book. But uh, here at one of the climax points uh, in chapter 11, that gets emphasized. Ugh. Moses is pushing people to make a choice. Choose where your heart goes. Now, to a modern ear, that sounds very odd, doesn't it? You need to choose where your heart goes. Choose what you love. And the modern ear says, well, I'm at the mercy of my emotions. You know, whoop, they've pulled me over here. And whoop, you know, I'm just thinking, I can't control my emotions. You know, the heart must do what the heart says. I, I must be true to my feelings. I, I must follow them wherever they lead me. Uh, amazing, you know, talking about. You, know, you can choose what, to set your heart upon something. And so Moses says, choose. Verse 13. I get three little emphasis again. It's still to the heart here. Verse 13, if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and your soul. Do you know what? Obedience is good for you, he says. And and if you choose to do the right thing, your heart follows after it. You, You can work in that direction. Verse 16, it's slightly hidden by the translation here. Be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away. And worship other gods. Literally, verse 16, be careful or your heart will be deceived. 
and turn away and worship other gods. Oh, look, you can be careful. You, you can stop your heart being deceived. You don't have to be at the mercy of your emotions. Verse 18, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. You, you can choose. I, I'm not going to allow my heart to be deceived, but I'm going to fix these words of the Lord in my heart. I, I'm choosing here to listen to him. Do you remember this little section, verse uh, 11, 18 downwards? It's almost identical to chapter 6. Uh, here, eleven eighteen. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and mind. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk down the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land. You can choose to have these words in your heart. You can make that choice. And that is choosing to not be deceived in your heart. So you do have some control there, Israel. Now, can I just make this obvious point again, that it's really hard to love the Lord unless you spend time listening to him. Uh, Unless you spend time remembering what he's done for you. It's almost impossible. Recalling his actions through the Lord Jesus Christ for you, recalling his ongoing care, having those words in your heart. It's almost impossible to love him if you don't choose that. Not that knowledge changes you. Uh, Knowledge alone doesn't do that. You can have the knowledge in your head that uh, there is only one God and that there aren't two governors I have to serve. You can have that knowledge in your head, uh, but, but not do anything with it, of course. So I can have in my head in the past week, I, I, there is, you know, I'm conscious, I'm in Deuteronomy 10, 11, I'm con- you know, there is one Lord and I serve him alone. And yet, where's my daydreaming been most of the week? Well, it's a bit of a hassle at, with the flat we own and the, sort out the garden, have a new fence in and repair carpets and, and well, that's expensive. And how, does, and how do we make that add up? And when's the timing? And if I most of my daydreaming this week has been on a flat and how to pay for repairs to a flat. And that's sort of been occupying my thinking and probably my heart. Well, it's not very helpful, is it? But I do have a choice. I can choose to make sure my heart is full of God's word. Spend time with him and think, no, he is my praise. He is the one who's redeemed him, me. He is the one I follow. You do choose. Do you remember, I think it was last year, uh, some of you would have been there at the church house party. Uh, it was just, it was a rhetorical question, which I think threw everyone because, uh, it, sorry, it was a non-rhetorical question, which if you're listening to a sermon, it throws you, because people, preachers throw out rhetorical questions all the time, but it was a non-rhetorical, everyone was like, what do we do with that? Um, so Justin Moat was preaching, and he asked, uh, he said, he asked, the, he said, do all Christians still have daily quiet times? Do you all do that? And there was, uh, and I couldn't work out if there was confusion because embarrassment that not everyone did, or we'd been asked a question, is that a real question? What do we do with that? Are we meant to say yes? Are we meant to put up our hands? I don't know, what do we do now? Uh, surely it's a rhetorical question. Oh, 
oh no, he's still asking and looking. Um, so there's all sorts of confusion in the room. But it's a very good question. I wonder what people made of that. Does everyone still do that? Christians have done throughout the centuries to make sure there's a time alone with the Lord. When you listen to his word, you think about it, you respond to him in prayer. The, oh yeah, he is a good God. He is the only God. He is my praise. He is the one who saved me through Jesus Christ. Lord, what do you, you, yeah, I do want to serve you with my life. I do. Actually, I do love you. And you are more important than carpets in a flat. I remember that now. But you have to choose that. You have to choose to carve out that time. You can't live on the time with the Lord in the past. We all need grace every day, if you're a Christian, to live this life. But you can't consume a huge amount of grace through the Word of God and then just live off it for, for months. Any more than you can eat a meal today and expect that to sustain you for the next three months. Any more than you can take a big inhalation of breath and think, well, that's enough. I've got enough oxygen for the next week now. Now, you need it all the time. And you can't think, well, you know, last year I had lots of good time with the Lord and that'll sustain me this year. You can't, what? We need grace every day to love him with our hearts. It's a deliberate choice. And so the Lord established for Israel this strange ceremony in verse 26 to 32. This strange ceremony when he did these two mountains. Uh, verse 26, see, I'm sending before you today a blessing and a curse, a choice, a choice for you, Israel. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from the way that I'm com- I command you today by following other gods which you've not known. So when you enter the promised land, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land you're about to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. What a strange thing to do. And you get much more detail on this in chapters 28 and 29 of the book. So someone stands on one mountain and just shouts out, look, if we obey the Lord, it's going to go really well with us. And on another mountain, if we obey the Lord, it's going to go really badly if we disobey him. And you shout out all this long list of blessings and curses. And it was a very strange thing to do. But he's saying, choose. Israel today choose. And when it's Monday, choose. And when it's Tuesday, choose. Choose that your heart will follow the Lord. Each and every day we choose. When you leave the house, you choose. Shall I lock the door or shall I leave it open and entice in the burglars? I mean, maybe it would be a conscious choice. You may just sort of do it by default, I know. But there is a choice there. And every each and every day you choose. Will I, will I go to the Lord and remind myself of who he is and love him? Or will I not? Will I leave the door open so that my heart may be enticed away? Choose, Israel. What does the Lord require? A heart that's active, a heart that chooses him. But thirdly, it is a heart that he gives. It's a heart that he gives. In chapter 10, verse 16, the center of our passage we read, or Charlie read, you get this command. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Ouch. Uh, 
circumcision. I mean, you know, traditionally Jewish, you do it when a baby's eight years old and doesn't know too much about what's going on. To have it done as an adult without anesthetic, not so good, I wouldn't think. Ouch. But what does this metaphor mean? I guess it means to remove, cut away all the moral and spiritual barriers to true devotion. I guess it's explained by the second half of the verse. Don't be stiff-necked any longer. Stiff-necked. You know, you, you don't move. Someone over there says, follow me, and you just, you don't move your neck. The Lord says, listen to me, and you just keep going forward. You're stubborn, in other words. You don't turn your head and listen. It's, you know, if you're writing this today, don't say, na 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 not listening. That's that sort of sense to it. Don't be stubborn about it. Circumcise your hearts. But the obvious question that the whole book of Deuteronomy asks is, how do you change your own heart? The answer finally comes in chapter 30. You don't. But the Lord does. Will you just flick on me to chapter 30? Chapter 30 and verse 6 is the key one. On page 208. Because the legacy of the book of Deuteronomy is a people who are sometimes loyal, but often not. There are times of obedience, but never lasting obedience, never lasting loyalty. And in fact, the whole Old Testament is the story of, it's the recurrent story of failure, faithlessness. But here's the wonderful promise. Moses says a time will come when they've failed. Let me pick it up at chapter verse 1. When all these blessings and curses have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, okay, you're going to get cursed and you're going to get kicked out of the promised land. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with your heart, with your soul, everything I command you today, well, let's get to verse 6. Here's the key. The Lord your God, he will circumcise, circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may... Love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. He will do it. He will do it. It is the Lord's work to enter into the heart of any individual and transform them so they're converted. In the language of the New Testament, so they're born again. So that there's a dramatic change and they desire to live for him. You can't change your heart on your own. Just think of it physically, to have a heart transplant, that's a pretty passive operation. You know, sometimes you can do minor surgery on yourself. You might uh, take off a finger if you really needed to. You might, if on the battlefield, sew up a wound without anesthetic. Or you'd have to be, you know, pretty robust to do that sort of thing. To give yourself a heart transplant, no. No, you don't do that. Spiritually, to have a new heart, you don't do that. That's the Lord's work. It's his work. And as the Bible's revelation unfolds, it's very obvious that it is a gift of God's Spirit, that the risen ascended Jesus Christ, it's His work to send His Spirit into the heart of anyone 
so that they're transformed. And when he does that, that produces a fundamental new loyalty to him. It is a dramatic change that can't be undone. In case you, you read, the, you read these stories, they're slightly odd stories, every now and pops up in the press, of someone who's had a transplant and says it changes their personality. So one was um, uh, Cheryl Johnson a few years ago, she had a heart transplant, uh, and said, it was wonderful, I, obviously I would have died, but now I'm alive, but also my whole personality has changed. Uh, I was a 42-year-old woman, I was given the heart of a 59-year-old man, and um, before I used to sort of read NAF chick lit. And now I'm, I just, I'm only interested in the greats. I'm reading Dostoevsky. I'm reading Tolstoy. And I had no desire to do that before. But now I've got this old bloke's, old bloke, 59-year-old bloke's heart. Um, I, I just want to live differently. And beforehand, you know, chocolate. I couldn't give a hoot about chocolate. Now I get through several Snickers a day. I mean, just, you know, I've just changed. And, and my personality, I was a little bit quick to anger, but now I'm, I'm far more laid back. Now I've got this new heart. I've inherited the characteristics of this guy. And you get these stories every so often. And the medics say, don't think so. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know what you make of that. You get them various times to the transplants. They take on the characteristics of the, of the donor. Well, here is a heart transplant that genuinely changes you, for real. I guess the only similarity is for Cheryl Johnson to get a new heart. A 59-year-old bloke had to die. And actually, for any of us here, the new heart that God gives, well, it comes through the death of Jesus Christ for all that we've done wrong. His resurrection to new life. And then he gives us a new heart. But it is on the basis of his substitutionary death for us. That's the only point of comparison. But it is genuine change. You can now, if you're a Christian believer, have both internal emotions and external actions that the Lord desires. And we sit here and think, yeah, but I don't always want to do that. No, no. You still have to choose. You can't give yourself a new heart. But all of us know we can have healthier hearts. We can eat less gunk. We can do more good stuff, exercise. That's what I'm after. Um, You can choose once you've been given a new heart. You can live differently now. Oh, as we've sung, of course, Lord, now indeed I find your power and yours alone can heal this leper's spots and melt this heart of stone. But when you've got a new heart, you still choose which direction. You still choose whether you allow it to be deceived or whether you fill it with his word so that you love him. What does the Lord require of you? He requires a heart that loves him. And that heart issues in obedience to him. But he does give you that heart. He does. And says, now, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. And love me. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you that we find ourselves 
in a place far better than the Israelites listening to Moses. At a point in the history of the world and the history of your salvation, where this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see more clearly that you are the one who gives new hearts on the, due to the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us here who are yours, would we therefore, with the new hearts you've given us, choose to love you, who is so worthy of our love? Father, having done everything for us, would we respond with both our affections and our actions, demonstrating that we love you? We pray it because it is, as Moses tells us, for our good to live this way, as well as the honor of your name. We pray it through Jesus. Amen.